Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our broadcast today is entitled Passing from Death unto Life. Just in brief review, recently here on Words of Grace, we've been undertaking a study on what we've referred to as sovereign grace statements from the Gospel of John. And so in this series, we've considered first of all together John chapter 6 and verse 37, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. We consider John chapter 10 and the great statements about Jesus being the shepherd of his sheep, how his sheep are given life, his sheep were given to him by his father, and none can pluck them out of his father's hand. We consider John 17, 1 through 5, especially verse 3, that talks about the fact that Christ has been given power over all flesh to give eternal life to as many as the Father has given him. And last week, we looked at John chapter 3 and verse 8, a passage that compares the new birth to the power behind the blowing of the wind. That is to say, God is sovereign. When he sends the wind through creation, God alone has authority and power over the wind. The wind and sea obeys him. And at the same time, only God is sovereign over the new birth. The new birth only is a thing, an experience that people have because God is orchestrating that. We are born of God. We are born again because of the active working of God, and this is just like it parallels the blowing of the wind through creation. We feel the effects of it, we hear it, but we don't know where it came from, we don't know where it goes, and certainly we have no authority or control over it. And, as we read last week from John 3, 8, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And without the new birth, we can't see the kingdom, and we're certainly not going to enter into the kingdom any spiritual perception or enjoyment that we have is because we're born again, and we're born again as the wind blows through the sovereign power of God. Today we want to consider another of these sovereign grace statements from the book of John, one that's found in John chapter 5, namely verses 24 and 25. This particular passage relates to the new birth, which we again, studied last week here on Words of Grace, and the power behind being born again, and as we'll see in this message today, that power is the voice of the Son of God. That is to say, they hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Turning to John chapter 5, verses 24 and 25, again, in a message that we have entitled, Passing from Death to Life. Let's read this statement. Verily, verily, truly, truly. In a Bible study in our home this week, one of my sons asked why Jesus always says verily, verily before he makes one of these statements. And the word verily means truly. If you use a KJV, the word is verily, but it simply means truly, 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 verily, verily. And he says it twice for emphasis, something that Jews would often do. And Jesus is saying that word verily twice just to emphasize, put emphasis on what he's about to say. Truly, truly, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. As we have done with the other messages in this series, we're going to give you a brief summary of this statement, then back up into the context to see the background from this statement. Why did the Lord make this statement? What is happening in the world that causes the conversation in which Jesus would make this statement? But first, briefly summarizing this, Jesus says those that hear his message, his word, the gospel, and they believe on God because they hear the gospel, they have everlasting life, they will not come into condemnation, but they are past present tense from death unto life. Now, just very simply put, as we will explain in a little more depth at the close of today's broadcast, if you hear the gospel message and you believe it, you respond positively to it, you believe what's being taught when it's taught to you, you don't reject it, it's not foolishness to you, but you simply believe it when you hear it. You do so because you have passed from death unto life. Notice, he that heareth hath everlasting life, that's present tense, and shall not future tense come into condemnation, but is past, present tense, from death unto life. So if you hear the word and you believe it, the reason you hear it and believe it when other people reject it, as we emphasized last week on the broadcast, well, it's because you have passed from death unto life. You have been quickened when you were dead in trespasses and in sins. Verse 25, the power behind this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. And that statement might sound like it's a resurrection passage talking about the end of time, but as you'll see as we come back to this passage in just a moment, Jesus is not teaching something that would happen one day far in the future, more than two millennia at least in the future. Jesus is teaching something that was happening right then in the world and would continue to happen all through human history, the quickening of his people. Now let's back up into the context and look at a little bit of what Jesus experienced, the conversation that would ensue, everything that happened leading up to these interesting and instructive statements that he makes in verses 24 and 25. Back in verse 1 of this chapter, John chapter 5 and verse 1, after this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk. That means people who have no power in their feet to get up and walk. They're people who are paralyzed. Perhaps they had withered limbs. These were people that for one reason or another, they were disabled. They couldn't walk. Notice there are other types of people there who were disabled. The blind, the halt, the withered. These people are here and they're waiting for the moving of the water. Why would these disabled people be here in one of these five porches waiting for the water in this pool at Bethesda to start bubbling? The water would begin moving. Well, an angel, according to verse 4, went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. 
Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. I've sometimes heard modern preachers debate whether or not this was a figment of their imagination, whether it was some other natural phenomenon, and people just laid there waiting for it to happen in hope that it was real and not a myth. But Scripture doesn't say that people believed that an angel went down at a certain season into the pool. Scripture says, for an angel went down at a certain season into the pool. So I have no reason to believe that this is not true. I believe, according to this passage, that an angel actually went to the pool and first come, first serve. He troubled the water. The first person there into the water would be made whole. Well, Jesus passes by this place and he sees a certain man a man that had an infirmity thirty and eight years. And when Jesus saw him lie there, he knew that he had been now a long time in that case. He saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? He asks him, Are you going to be made whole today? Are you going to go get in the water? Well, this man replies, the impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming... Another steppeth down before me. This man says, I would love to, but I'm disabled and I'm slow. And by the time I make it to the water, somebody else has beat me there. There's no telling how many times this man has stood here by the water, seen the water be troubled, rushed down as quickly as he could physically get there, only for someone else to get that blessing before him. Jesus then says to this man, listen how beautiful this is. Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. This man, simply by Jesus speaking it, is healed. Now, you and I would be amazed at that. We would rejoice in that. If it were our Lord's Day, which the Sabbath was Saturday, the last day of the week in the Old Testament, we now today have the Lord's Day, which is the first day of the week, Sunday. If someone on Sunday morning were at, let's say we're local in Huntsville, Big Spring Park, or perhaps they're at some other place where there's water, and he was laying there hoping one day to get healed there, and a man walked by and healed that man, well, we would be ecstatic. We would be overjoyed. I think most people, when they learn of someone being healed of any infirmity, would be glad that the sickness is over for that person. But you see, there's a problem. Notice the last statement here in verse 9. On the same day was the Sabbath. Jesus had just healed a man with the power of his voice on the Sabbath day. Rather than rejoicing at that, many Jews who had witnessed this man be healed suddenly were offended because they believed it was not lawful for Jesus to heal this man on the Sabbath. This would be something that people would criticize Jesus for over and over again. But remember, the Sabbath day was not made for God, but the Sabbath day was made for man. God is still God on the Sabbath day. God still upholds all things by the word of his power on the Sabbath day in the Old Testament, just as he does the other six days of the week. God never lays aside his sovereignty and says, well, I'm going to take a day off No, while God gave the Sabbath for men to have a day of rest and a day that sanctified, a day in which they were to think about God and keep holy and honor Him, though God gave men that day 
Well, that doesn't mean that God is bound by that commandment. Now, Jesus kept the Sabbath as God intended it because Jesus, as a man, kept the law to a jot and a tittle. But God never meant to convey the notion in giving the Sabbath day that we can't do good on the Sabbath day. To put it briefly, it's always a good time to do a good thing. And so Jesus, seeing this man in that condition— being God incarnate, who can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, if he wants, because he's sovereign, he simply speaks and the man is healed. Now, did Jesus exert any work on this day? Did Jesus plow a field on that day? No, he didn't. Did Jesus build a home on that day? No, he didn't. He didn't do anything physical. He simply spoke it into being. He spoke and the man was healed. Now, I should point out that the Jews of that era were so very hypocritical regarding the Sabbath. I've read stories, historical accounts from that time period where they knew they were not allowed to travel on the Sabbath day, but it was okay to go pick up one of your belongings. So earlier, they would hide along a route. They intended to travel certain items of clothing under rocks. They would do whatever they could to get around this rule about no travel on the Sabbath and other rules as well. They were very legalistic and they were very hypocritical. But what Jesus did in God's eyes was not wrong because, number one, Jesus is God. And number two, it's always good to do a good thing. Further, in other places, Jesus would expound upon this idea that if your ox is in a ditch on the Sabbath day, there's nothing wrong with helping the ox get out of the ditch. If you're sick on the Sabbath day, there's nothing wrong if your spouse takes care of you. If you're hungry on the Sabbath day, there's nothing wrong with physically putting the food in your mouth. I mean, think about how bizarre of an extreme that could be taken to by someone who is legalistic. Literally, you could do nothing but sit there and rest. No walking to the restroom, no picking up a bowl of milk that your child spilled in the carpet. You can't clean that spilled milk. It's got to remain until the first day of the week. Well, that's not what God intended, but that's so often the legalistic standard that some of these people held regarding the Sabbath. Returning to the narrative, in verse 10, the Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, it is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. Why are you carrying your bed on the Sabbath day? Well, Jesus told him to, so it was fine. And this man says, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. And then they reply, What man is it that said to thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was. I don't know who healed me. For Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Jesus went somewhere else here in Jerusalem. Well, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. And he walks up to him and he says, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. This might indicate that perhaps this man in his youth committed some folly or sin and was injured in the process, and that's why he was paralyzed, which is interesting because if a sin had led to his condition, Jesus is merciful because he delivered him from something that he literally did unto himself. This would have been a self-inflicted wound. Thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee, perhaps implied there is that a sin had led to this condition. Either way, if this man were to go and use his new mobility to sin, then certainly the ramifications of sin and the chastening of God for sin would have been worse than what he had endured up until that moment 
as well. This man departed, and he told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole, and the Jews sought to persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. They say, you're not allowed to heal this poor man on the Sabbath day and tell him take up his bed and walk. So they seek to kill him, and they're here in their power structure. They're where they have the power. They're in the temple in Jerusalem. This is where they had the authority to arrest him and would eventually one day arrest him and deliver him to Pilate to be crucified. They come approach Jesus, and they begin to persecute him because he has healed this man. And listen to Jesus' answer. Jesus' defense to them is extraordinarily interesting. Verse 17, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. What's Jesus' defense? God the Father works on the Sabbath, my Father works on the Sabbath, and I work on the Sabbath. God works on the Sabbath. God never takes a day off, as we've already emphasized. Now, when the Jews hear this, they don't say, oh, okay, we get it now. You're the Son of God, you're God incarnate, the incarnation of the second person of the Godhead, God manifest in human flesh, great is the mystery of godliness. They don't say that. When they hear Jesus say, my Father works here, and I work here. My Father works on the Sabbath, and I healed someone on the Sabbath, and there's nothing wrong with it. When they heard him say that, they sought the more to kill him. Why would they seek to kill him for saying that? For simply saying, my father works hitherto and I work. Because he not only had broken the Sabbath, in their opinion, but said also that God was his father, making himself, notice this language, equal with God. This would not be the only time in Jesus' ministry when Jesus would make a statement about he and his father being one, and the Jews taking up stones to stone him or seeking to kill him, persecuting him. When we were studying together a few weeks ago, John chapter 10, when Jesus said, I and my Father are one, the Jews took up stones to stone him. Jesus said, I've done many good works in my Father's name, for which do you stone me? And they say, well, not for a good work, but for blasphemy, because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. To say that he and his Father are one is then to make himself God, or as we read here in John chapter 5, equal with God. I've said this many, many times, but if anyone who claims to be a believer in Christ tells you that Jesus never claimed divinity, you can look that person square in the eye and tell them that they have no idea what they're talking about, because over and over Jesus laid claim to divinity. The very word, the very title, Son of God, means that he is equal with God, he is one with God, he is the word that was made flesh that dwelt among us, the word that was with God, was God, and was with God in the beginning, the creator of heaven and earth, according to John chapter 1. I and my Father are one. Here, Jesus says, my Father works, and I work. And they were more angry because he made himself, quote, equal with God. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. God is one God, but this one God, this Godhead, exists as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. 
These are the three persons of the Godhead, and yet there is only one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-eternal and co-equal, but there are not three gods. There is yet one God. The Son is of the same essence or substance as the Father. The Trinity is a great mystery that there can be three that yet are one, but that is what Scripture presents unto us. And Jesus says very plainly here, my Father works and I work, and they interpret that as a claim to divinity, and they want to kill him. Well, Jesus says after this that you'll see greater things than these, that you might marvel in verse 20. And then he begins to speak about how the Father raises the dead and quickens them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. And that whom he will means whom he desires to quicken, who he desires or wills to give life. That is a statement of God's sovereignty in salvation. The Son gives life unto whom that he wills to give life to. But this brings us unto verse 24. Verily, verily, the subject matter being quickening, giving life, God giving life to people, Christ quickening people when they are dead. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. The Son quickens whomsoever he will. The Son wills to quicken people, and he quickens them. How do I know that I am a person who has been quickened? Well, verse 24, He that heareth his word and believes on him that sent him has everlasting life. Notice that, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Belief is a product of being born again. Whosoever believeth is born of God and knoweth God. Remember last week. Remember the week before. Remember the week before that and the week before that. Our recent messages in this series have often emphasized the point from Scripture that we as natural men find the gospel foolishness. We do not believe. We do not fear God. We do not understand God. We do not seek after God. But God changes us. He quickens us. He raises us from death and sin to life in Christ. And when that happens, we have a hunger and a thirst after righteousness. We have a new nature. We have this inner man. Christ has been sent into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Every single thing I just said is a quotation of some part of the New Testament. We are made new creatures in Christ Jesus, the workmanship of God created unto good works. You have been changed. Well, how do I know that I have been quickened as Jesus quickens whomsoever he will? Well, if I believe the message that he preached, and I believe on him that sent him, I have everlasting life. And I won't come into condemnation because I have passed from death unto life, which is why I believe. Life precedes action. Regeneration precedes faith. Birth precedes belief. Belief is a product of birth. Action is a product of life. He that hears his word and believes has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Now, we're using some words here that we've used in this series. Today, the word we emphasize is quicken. And this word quicken means to be given life. The word quick in English in the 17th century, when the translation I prefer was translated, the King James Version of the Bible, that word quick meant alive. It didn't mean fast 
or speedy as we take it to mean today. The word quick meant to be alive. The word quickened means to be brought to life. Or as Jesus says here in the last phrase of verse 24, is passed from death unto life. Now this word quickened is synonymous in Titus 3 for the term regenerated, regeneration, We've been saved by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. When we were aforetimes hateful and hating one another, God has changed us. We now have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Those are traits on the personality of a person who is born again. And, as we just used the word, born again is synonymous with regeneration and quickening. Now, just to emphasize that salvation is literally life from death, Notice the last clause here, a person that's quickened is passed from death unto life. Ephesians chapter 2 says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. You were dead in sins. Now you have been quickened to life in Christ. What is the active power behind quickening? So quickening is a resurrection, bringing something to life that is dead. The active power in quickening is the same active power in the resurrection and the active power in creation in the beginning of time. What is that power? Look at verse 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. If you are quickened, it is because the voice of the Son of God called your dead soul from death and sin to life in Christ. Do you remember when Jesus went to the tomb of a deceased friend named Lazarus, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus had been dead for more than four days. Everybody was afraid to roll away the stone because by that point he would stink. And what happens? Lazarus comes forth alive. Jesus tells those that are looking at this happen, loose his clothes, loose his grave clothes, let him go. Lazarus goes and immediately begins to fellowship Jesus and to worship. That's a beautiful picture of what happens in the new birth. Jesus speaks to our dead souls, dead because of the sin of Adam. We are conceived in sin and shapen in iniquity. Jesus says, live, and our souls pass from death and sin to life in Christ. A couple of other statements about that. Notice that if you have passed from death unto life, you're not going to enter into condemnation. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I know a lot of preachers in the world tell you that you can somehow lose this salvation if you do this or that. But listen to me, there's no condemnation to those who have passed from death unto life. You have eternal life. This life never ends. This life will endure even until the next world. You've passed from death unto life. You will not come into condemnation. And this also parallels the theological statement that the Apostle Paul makes in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, in which he says that we believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. We believe not because we chose to believe. We believe not because we're smarter than other people or maybe even more simple than other people. We believe this message because we have passed from death unto life. The resurrecting power of God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, has raised our dead soul, quickened us when we were dead in trespasses and in sins. Now, back to John chapter 5, in closing, you might think, well, that sounds a lot like a resurrection. Isn't Jesus talking about the end of time there? 
No, notice verse 28. Marvel not at this, Jesus says, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth they that have done good under the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. That is the resurrection at the end of time. What Jesus is talking about in verses 24 and 25 is the resurrection of the soul when a person is quickened when they were dead in trespasses and in sins. And again, if you believe the message, if you love the Lord Jesus, if you believe in Him, then friend, you have already passed from death unto life. You're a person that has everlasting life, and you will not come into condemnation. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write and let me know that you've received the broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at MarchToZion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. And finally, Words of Grace is a listener-supported program. To contact us, address your correspondence to... Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.